0: Welcome to the International Civil Society Center's Futures and Innovation Podcast. I'm Eva Gondorová, a project manager at the Center. Today's podcast focuses on solidarity in the civil society. Many civil society organizations are facing new and new threats, from lawsuits and negative publicity to intimidation. Many of them have shown resilience, addressing these threats and pushing back against clampdowns. They have built coalitions to support one another and to respond to attacks in a unified voice. But how can we learn from their experience? Three international civil society organizations and three coalitions share their best practices, learnings and challenges in a newly published pilot case studies of the Solidarity Playbook. The Playbook is a part of the Solidarity Action Network, which aims at strengthening resilience of and solidarity among civil society actors. Today I'm talking with the authors of these case studies, Deborah Dawn and Sarah Pugh. We'll discuss why solidarity among civil society actors matters and what we can learn from these case studies. Hope you enjoy! Hello
1: Deborah. Hi Eva, how are you?
0: I'm good. Hi Sarah. Hi Eva, nice to talk to you. Yeah, it's great to speak to you and thank you very much for joining our podcast today. I really enjoyed reading the case studies that you've written uh, about how civil society organizations develop different strategies to respond to any scrutiny and attacks and how coalitions were built to address them jointly. These case studies were framed under the headline of solidarity. Deborah, can you tell us what solidarity actually means for civil society organizations? Why do we need it in this context?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in the context of closing space, solidarity is center stage. It's it's really fundamentally important. It means, I mean, for me, it's about thinking beyond one organization, um, certainly thinking beyond even the sector about the systemic impact. So closing space affects small organizations, large organizations, human rights organizations, development organizations, environment. And I think without solidarity, it makes it very difficult to respond. So I would say that the fundamental criteria for me is about thinking beyond your organization.
0: Sarah, what do you think about it? Uh, why do we need solidarity, and uh, what does it actually mean in the context of the mentioned case studies?
2: Yeah. So just uh, to build on on what Deborah mentioned, I think you know it was it was interesting when we were. Um, gathering these case studies and speaking to your members, the different layers of solidarity that came through. Um, So, you know, for example, solidarity within the humanitarian development sector, so peer-to-peer, but also then beyond the sector, as as Deborah mentioned, um, with perhaps human rights or environmental groups, and solidarity with local and national actors as well. And the question really came up around how to show solidarity, whether it was behind closed doors or more sort of public facing forms. Um, So I think the thing that really came through for us in the context of closing space um, was just that that the solidarity that's needed now is not just about expressions of solidarity, um, but more around joint action, collaboration, and sort of committing to that enabling environment more broadly. Um, So I think for for us, what, what came through was the need for that broader look at the ecosystem of civil society and how to show solidarity across those different
0: layers. Mm-hmm. That's that's really interesting and uh, great that you already mentioned the case studies because this is also what we actually want to talk about today. So, uh, Deborah, was there anything that surprised you when you were collecting these case studies?
1: Well, there was there was lots that surprised me, but um, maybe I'll focus on a couple of points. I mean, we've been working on the issue of closing space for quite a number of years now, um, mostly with the human rights community. They've been working on this actively and collaboratively, I would say, for a number of years. But what I guess surprised me a little bit, um, to a degree, was the fact that ICSOs, maybe with the exception of a few who faced some direct attacks, kind of their response lagged a little bit behind the human rights community, and I think it took some by surprise, especially for the humanitarian and development sector. Um, Those who more overlap with the rights community, I think, were in a a, a better position, perhaps, to respond. So the the case studies, um, I think, as a result, kind of reflected that. So case studies I may have done in the human rights community are increasingly looking beyond the kind of defensive stance. How do you ensure resilience of an organization to actually push back against the trend? Um, So in the case studies, I think they were more adaptation to the situation uh, or defensive stances, like what, for example, you know, shaping a rights-based program to turn it into a sustainable livelihoods one. Um, So doing things to satisfy the the authorities um, versus trying to shape the narrative for the stronger civil society. That being said, um, there was some great work that came out of the case studies like the Civil Society, the the Civilization Coalition in Hungary, and that was a really clear example of pushing back against the trend. But most of the case studies that we were able to uncover for now were really about protecting individual organizations. And I suppose to a degree that
0: surprised
1: me, um, but it does lay, I guess, a solid groundwork for for, for moving forward.
0: Mm-hmm. okay that sounds really interesting uh, and you are already uh you know mentioning a few of these case studies and also findings so uh we would want to hear more about uh main findings and learnings that uh, you collected through this process um Sarah in terms of building resilience uh what do you think other civil society organizations can learn from these case studies
2: and um, well I think Looking at the the sort of the first three cases, uh, which looked at individual responses, so that was Action Aid, Islamic Relief Worldwide, and Greenpeace International. Um, we certainly saw you know sort of common common themes and threads around the different layers of resilience and the different levels um, that they were sort of looking at and seeking to strengthen. Um, so those three layers that we saw were the individual. So that means individual staff members and activists who need safeguarding and capacity building. The second level was the organization itself and how to strengthen resilience there. And then the third being the sector or civil society more broadly. So looking at the systemic resilience. And I think all the case studies had some really great examples of strategies um, that had been used to address those levels. So whether that was training for individuals maybe scenario planning for the organization or mapping of key stakeholders, and then perhaps work around creating a unified sector voice um, to sort of address that broader civil society level. Mm-hmm. And I think you're, you're going to be publishing sort of a summary of those different learnings. So what I want to just hone in on is some of the key points I think um, that, really, that really struck me. So one of those was around acknowledging the issues that are bigger than one actor. So the strategies that recognize where work work is needed that goes beyond what any actor can achieve in isolation. And I think that really came across in the Greenpeace case, um, where they actually catalyzed the formation of a national coalition to try and tackle the challenge around slapsuits that they were sort of um, experiencing as an individual organization. Um, And I think that also comes across in the Islamic Relief study where they mentioned the work they're doing with other stakeholders on the challenge around bank de-risking. So even in those individual case studies, there was a sort of an inkling or a hint at that need for solidarity and collaboration. So that came across quite clearly. Um, and then I think another key point for me was just the value add that came with engaging with closing space issues as a federation or as a family of offices or organizations. So I think in the action aid case study that really demonstrated how a federation can mobilize resources and learning across different contexts um, and also Definitely, the Islamic Relief study shows how coordination at the international secretariat level can really support national level responses. And then just one final point I think to draw out, which was really important, was the need to think about resilience in the short, mid and long term. So I think there's a, there's a temptation to just look at it in the short term in terms of attacks on officers or reputational attacks and what you do in that sort of first immediate response. Um, But I think the the action aid study was really useful, sort of showing that their immediate response to an attack on their office was successful. They certainly sort of had good resilience in the short term in terms of the safety of their staff, um, being able to scenario plan around squeezing of their accounts and so on. But they actually faced challenges further down the line in terms of staff morale, their reputation um, and a sort of general chill effect on the sector. So I think that was really helpful in demonstrating that need
0: for the short, mid and long term thinking around resilience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just mentioned the short and mid term. Uh, are there any organisations that really actively think about the long term? Well, I think ActionAid we're, were really working on that
2: from that experience that they had um, in the case study. So in terms of, you know, even, even despite providing psychosocial support for their staff, they were still seeing you know, a kind of chill effect amongst the staff and staff morale. And even though they'd done work around communications um, after after those office attacks, they sort of they saw that not more was needed around reputational um, impact. And I think you know, one really strong response they had was to actually take a closing space lens to some of their programmatic work. So they now have a program funded by CEDA, for example, that's looking at how to. Coordinate other actors in civil society in that context to try and strengthen the broader system and the broader resilience, so that there isn't that chill effect and there is sort of more coordination and collaboration. So I think they certainly have put in those long-term, long-term strategies, and that's really part of their thinking. So I think that case study is really helpful in showing those different levels.
1: Kit, can I add to that just a little bit? I also think the um, Islamic Relief example is is great as well I love the quote which was um, they said make friends one of the key lessons is to make friends while the sun shines and that's really about thinking long-term and nurturing relationships at the legislative level which they did in the US they also built those longer term relationships I think both Greenpeace and Islamic Relief it was both about the organizational response but together with coalition's that they work with so in Greenpeace it was protect the protest and Islamic Relief, of course, the, the TOGETHER project. And I think those are both thinking about the resilience of both their own organizations and the sector, medium and long-term, which which feels really important.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I think this is also a really important point that both of you, Sarah and Deborah, mentioned, that uh, a lot of them also work in coalitions, right? They also need to think beyond individual organization to to protect themselves and to, to respond to attacks. So, looking um, at the case studies, uh, what are the key elements of uh, successful coalitions, Sarah, that you that you came across? Yes, yeah, so we, we looked at three um,
2: different coalitions. So we looked at the Global VUCA Coalition um, and honed in specifically on their country call mechanism. We then looked at the Civilization Coalition in Hungary, which came together um, to respond to government attacks, and then the Action Group on Free Civic Space in Nigeria, which had sort of started life as a a more informal, fluid network, but then became a more formal coalition in the face of sort of mounting restrictions. Um, And so looking at those those three coalitions, I think there were probably four key lessons that really emerged. um, from those studies and the, the first not not a surprise really is trust and the importance of trust. So this came across really strongly in the Hungary example where actually the um, CSOs from across different sectors were coming together for the first time to, to collaborate. And so they had to navigate different approaches, agendas and risk appetites um, and they sort of they really underlined that it, it took time to build that trust. Um, but they also mentioned certain principles that helped to build those relationships. So, for example, one member, one votes or everyone contributes according to their capacity. So that was, I think, a really good example of how people who hadn't worked together previously had to come together and build that trust quite quickly. Um, the second key lesson, I think, was the importance of clear governance and structures. So... Um, several of the coalitions mentioned that having really clear protocols and criteria can help those different groups to come together. Um, so particularly you know, in terms of process and, and clear guidelines on how decisions are made and um, just to sort of really help build that trust. Um, the, the third lesson was coordination. Um, so it was underlined several times um, actually in, in the Greenpeace example that yes, information sharing is really helpful um, in and of itself, but actually it's hugely elevated when there is a coordination function. So whether that's one person or a team who can identify those gaps and opportunities and can really drive the work of the coalition forward. So coordination was really key in several of the examples. And then finally, the fourth key lesson was just around common ownership. So I think the Nigerian example really demonstrated this point in terms of Individual organizations can really struggle to sign up to a coalition that feels like it's owned by someone else or driven by someone else. Um, There can be suspicion and concerns around, you know, does it fit in with our mandate or not? So what that case study showed was the importance of finding that common ground and unity of purpose um, so that there can be that buy-in from across sectors um, that helps to maintain collaboration and sort of create that sense of common ownership across the sector or across civil society in that, in that region or, or state. Um, so yeah, I think those are the sort of four key lessons that we found from, from the coalition examples. And it was really helpful to have that sort of international almost meta-coalition from VUCA and the national examples to just show the importance of, of
0: those you know, having coalitions at different levels um, where space is closing. Mm-hmm. I like the last point that you just mentioned. Having the coalition's different levels, uh, what can they actually learn from each other? I mean, what can the national coalition lo- uh, learn from international ones, and and vice versa? Well,
2: I think the the VUCA example, particularly, just you know, really shows the importance of that that cross sector um, collaboration. So having people, organisations from from the humanitarian and development sector speaking with those from the human rights sector and speaking sort of up and down the chain from the international to the regional to the national you know on those those country calls that we looked at in particular it was all around yes sharing information about what was happening on the ground but then understanding who was doing what and therefore where were the gaps so they were able to synthesize that information really well to understand where is a gap where perhaps international civil society needs to support local partners or where is there an opportunity for advocacy campaigns or strategies so I think that was a a useful example there in terms of the cross-sector nature Um, but I I think the same the same rules apply in terms of building trust the clear structures the coordination Um, I think one thing the VUCA example shows is how important you know, security and, and a decent platform is to enable those sort of candid conversations. And um, so, yeah, I think the VUCA coalition is really helpful in terms of understanding that
0: level. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, we we'll just talked about uh, successful coalitions and what are kind of the key ingredients of success. But uh, what about challenges that remain? Deborah, do you want to answer?
1: Sure. I mean, The issue of closing space isn't going away anytime soon, and in fact, um, the current context with COVID-19, we're seeing a growing number of immediate restrictions on civic space, with some huge consequences, um, you know, you just saw in in China what happens when you restrict freedom of speech, for example, and the ability of civil society to respond, we saw that the um, the situation get worse and and we saw that we've seen that in in other countries um so i you know i think there's some some general challenges that remain even pre-covid-19 and then some things that i think covid-19 probably puts into stark relief for us so in general um you know the capacity of, of cso's to respond is a key factor everyone is um trying to respond on so many fronts to add um, civic space to all of the other challenges I think is difficult for organizations. So finding that capacity and I think the area is probably hugely under-resourced in the ICSO sector. Um, So how do you join up your organizational response and resource that, you know, let alone joining up with those coalitions and providing that um, resource? I think I think we're very good on the defensive now. We're learning a lot, and these case studies will help. We'll probably need more, which which, uh, maybe we can talk about at the end. But um, when those coalitions are not in defensive mode, so if there's not an immediate tag, I think it's a big challenge to um, maintain a response when things are quiet. So we would look at that as, like, how do you open up space? How do you create... The enabling environment. Talk about the role that civil society plays in 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 making the world a better place. That's you know the whole narrative. Working with the government to talk about the roles of civil society, doing so either loudly or quietly, depending on your mode of operations. I think that's that's a big challenge that remains. So moving from being um, defensive and protecting yourselves against attacks to that more um, proactive mode. And I I think the second key challenge that remains is, especially for ICSOs, is there's a level of mistrust probably between ICSOs and the local level. So there's a lot more resources that ICSOs have, at least on paper, as compared to say local partners. I think because movements and HRDs were the first under attack, some of them don't trust that the icso's have their interests at heart um in other contexts and other work that that i've done i've seen cases where the ion the icso sector probably rightly i i don't know the precise details would um want to work with a, a government and maintain access so would possibly put out a statement saying they might welcome restrictions that a government does they look forward to working with the government in so doing, that leaves human rights organizations, human rights defenders, small movements, kind of on their own and direct more directly under attack. So I think there's a need to build a common cause, and that's a challenge that remains. Um, there's a whole movement around trying to shift power to the local, and this is where I think COVID-19 um, makes things very relevant because, um, Many ICSOs are having to leave countries, the actual people on the ground have left. Um, You know, certainly, I'm based here in the UK, and INGOs are are, are fighting for their own survival, they're bereft of funds, they're fighting for funds from the bilateral organizations. Um, On the ground, many organizations are seeing no funding and when civil society locally is being restricted because of uh the types of regimes that some people are operating in that leaves them extremely vulnerable so how do you build solidarity in the current context i think is very important from a from a civic space perspective as well as responding to the the pandemic Um, those are probably you know we could go on there are so many challenges around this issue um, I suppose, I suppose the final one I would say is for ICSOs is trying to find a way to bridge that national and bespoke response, which Sarah talked about, you know, that you really need to have a, a response that's rooted in the local with the added value of where ICSOs are, which is that bridge to the international space. How do you join that up? And that's certainly a gap in the current response and, and a challenge that remains.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you very much. I think it's really interesting uh, to hear different perspectives and, you know, not only talk about uh, successes, but also challenges that remain. Uh, Well, um, we just uh, discussed uh, the first six pilot case studies that you collected. So these were uh, main learnings of of the pilot phase, but um, collecting will continue. So uh, what is important about continuing this work? Uh, Why do we need more case studies? Sarah, uh, can you answer first?
2: Yeah, um, I mean,
0: at a very basic level,
2: you know, ICSE members have identified this as a as a gap and a need. Um, you know, they they want to see examples of how peers have responded um, to closing space challenges, and you know, examples of, of mechanisms for strengthening their own resilience. But also, and you know, sort of encouragingly, um, we are seeing appetite for examples of how to act in solidarity with others so as deborah was saying beyond that defensiveness to a more proactive approach so you know icso is wanting to to see examples of how how to act in solidarity with their peers within the sector with local partners um, but also across sectors so overcoming that tension between the the public forms of solidarity and in-country access or safety so i think There's a definite need for for more examples of of what that can look like in different contexts and just you know underlining what what deborah mentioned then in terms of the context specific nature of those responses you know i I think it's really helpful to keep highlighting different examples and drawing out the learning because ultimately a static resource you know on on broad general guidelines about how to respond to closing space just doesn't work Um, you know, because those effective responses around an enabling environments really do need to be rooted in the local. So I think the more examples that we see and explore and the more we can draw out those strategies and understand how they can be tailored for different scenarios, the better. Because um, it just builds that sort of that understanding and learning amongst the sector of, of how to respond, but how to respond proactively um, in terms of resistance, not just resilience and, and defensiveness.
0: Yeah, I think these are really good points that we definitely need to look at closer. Um, Deborah, do you have anything to add to this?
1: Um, not very much. I mean, Sarah's covered it quite well, but I think, you know, the, the situations will change and I think we have to do active learning of case studies. Um, some of them could be in real time. There's more learning growing every day, but we do need to get beyond the kind of academic type approaches to to enable people to learn e- from each other and the best way to do that is, or one of the best ways to do that is through through case studies and to interrogate the understanding. I think one of the things we really enjoyed about the case studies is sometimes when you do them, you just tell the story, this is what happened, this is what happened, this is what happened. What I think we were able to draw out through conversation with people was their own reflections on what happened and what worked and what didn't work. And, and that's, The the more we can do that, the more we can refine our learnings and have better, more rapid responses as we go. And and to reiterate what Sarah said, is to move from simply resilience, which is very important. I don't want to underestimate the importance of that, but towards more proactive strategies so that in, in five years' time, we can look back and say, we have more countries that have a healthy enabling environment for civil society That aren't just responding to this ever increasing trend towards closing civic space. Um, So, so real life learning and and drawing on ongoing case studies will both help people learn, but hopefully inspire more action as well.
0: Sarah and Deborah, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. It has been a real pleasure talking to you both, and we definitely look forward to to seeing more case studies coming up. Thank you. Thank you, Eva. It's great to talk about them with We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you are interested in reading the case studies that we talked about, follow a link in the description. A big thanks to our case study partners for making their experience and learnings publicly available and to our producer, Julia Pazos. These case studies are part of the Solidarity Action Network, which brings together international civil society organizations And their local partners to support each other when faced with undue threats and challenges. The network enables exchange of best practices and inspires collaborative actions. Find a link to the Solidarity Action Network in the podcast description if you want to learn more. See you next time!